Good afternoon and happy Friday to you. Thanks so much for being with us. So we are going to start the show talking about something that has been happening on a weekly basis on a North Vancouver highway. It's actually happening on the overpass. And if you've been in that area anytime on a Thursday afternoon, you've likely seen the protesters who have taken to the overpass. They're at a different one now. And in a few moments, we're going to check in with the District of North Vancouver Councillor. But first, the Premier was asked about this yesterday. Global News reporter Richard Zussman got his take on what is happening with these protests. Here's what David Eby said about them. Two important issues here. Uh, one is uh, the issue of road safety. The Ministry of Transportation has uh, gone to court to seek an injunction. Uh, the place uh, where these individuals are protesting raises safety issues about uh, the traveling public along the highway, including the risk of uh, signs being dropped on the highway and so on, uh, which has actually materialized uh, in at least one case that I'm aware of. Uh, so that was the issue that, uh, that brought the Ministry of Transportation to court to make sure that people who are driving past this demonstration uh, are able to get to where they're going without, uh, without an accident. There's a second issue, which is the content of the protest. Obviously, uh, it's quite hateful. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, really, in my opinion, um, seeking to uh, divide British Columbians. Uh, and to uh, foment division and hatred in our province, I find it reprehensible. And, uh, and uh, while I recognize uh, uh, the free speech rights of uh, people to be out and to demonstrate, uh, the content of the demonstration I find uh, quite awful. And uh, I wish those people would certainly go home. Uh, but if nothing else, uh, we need to ensure that, uh, that the public is safe and that the demonstration doesn't compromise public safety. That was Premier David Eby speaking about the protests. We also heard from North Vancouver RCMP, Constable Mansour Sahak, talking about what RCMP are doing as they are monitoring what is happening. Yeah, so we're in constant communication with the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure who went out and sought the injunction. Uh, there's some clarifications on the, uh, on the injunction that we need further uh, explained. And once we have that clarification, we'll be able to go out and enforce the injunction. We have to protect the integrity of the judicial system and uh, make sure we don't infringe on anybody's rights. Uh, we have to take a cautious approach and uh, you know, it, it requires a lot of resources and a lot of planning. It, unfortunately, it can't happen overnight. Um, once we have that clarification from the Ministry of Transportation for Infrastructure, we can move forward. All right, so let's check in now with Jordan Back, a District of North Vancouver councillor. Thank you so much, Jordan, for being with us, uh, for talking more about this today. Hi, Jill. My pleasure. Well, this is something we have been talking about, and there was a court injunction issued. Can you remind us again about these protests that are still happening on the Mountain Highway overpass? What has been happening on that overpass? Yeah, so for several months now, we've uh, had protesters that have been uh, on the overpass. Uh, it started out at the Mountain Highway overpass in North Vancouver. Uh, they've now moved over to the Fern Street overpass. Uh, they've been there weekly uh, with their signs, uh, uh, messages that started out as sort of anti-COVID, anti-vax type messages. Uh, and now there's been um, really a, a, a transphobe and, and homophobic uh, type messages that have been posted. So with the injunction that was obtained by the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure, was that specifically for the Mountain Highway overpass and that's why the group has moved? That's correct. So uh, as, as you've said, the injunction was specific to the Mountain Highway overpass, which um, said that they could not uh, be posting or, or attaching anything to the overpass itself. 
um, but they've uh, they've moved to a different overpass, which has allowed them to continue. I understand as well uh, some of the messaging, like you said, and we've talked to people who are quite offended by some of the messaging. Uh, but there's also the issue uh, goes beyond that as a safety issue that uh, we've heard stories of where signs have been uh, even accidentally but dropped from the overpass and, and putting people at risk that way as well. They have been. They've uh, proved to be quite a distraction for people who are driving. And this is a busy highway um, on and off the North Shore. Um, and there has, uh, as you've said, been instances where these signs have fallen down onto the road. So um, in addition to being offensive to, I would say, the majority of our community, um, they provide, they've provided a real distraction for drivers as well. I know some of those that have been protesting, and there was one individual that spoke with Global News about this, uh, saying that, uh, that this person has been protesting every Thursday for almost a year at this point and calls it freedom of speech, saying that he's very concerned about the SOGI program in schools. What do you say to protesters like that who say, well, hold on a second, this is just our freedom of speech and exercising that? Yeah, well, I would say to them that freedom of speech is one thing, um, but they are speaking to, uh, they're not speaking to the majority of of people, um, and, and their speech is actually causing um, a lot of distress for many people in our community um, who have those same rights of freedom of speech. And I think uh, the type of, of language that they're using um, and, and the fact that they're doing it in such an open and public way every single week is causing a lot of people, uh, as I say, distress and potentially putting, putting them at risk. Um, so part of my role as a counselor is making sure that everyone in our community feels as though that they're included, um, that they belong, and that they're supported. And, and so I'm going to stand up for those people who are feeling as though this, this type of messaging is very offensive. Have you had any conversations with the people who are protesting? I've, I've tried to stay away uh, because, quite frankly, uh, I, I think the conversations that, that I've seen happening there um, have been quite confrontational. Um, and really, I just want to see, uh, I want to see them move on uh, in a peaceful way. Um, so that everyone can can feel uh, can feel safe again in our community. So at this point, though, with the group having moved to a different overpass, are the RCMP even able to move in? Or if it if the injunction was specific to the other overpass, is there anything police can do at this point? So I know that the police, uh, as I understand it, are, are looking at their options right now. I would like to see this injunction expanded because I think that's what's required for them to, to move in uh, and offer any kind of enforcement. So I'm hoping that uh, the province will expand the injunction um, so that the RCMP can uh, start to enforce them. Um, and that's I, really, I think, the only way it's going to be able to, uh, to happen. I would imagine, though, it would have to be expanded then, and I'm trying to think of other overpasses, but if their their response when there's an injunction is to move to another overpass, it might be like a game of whack-a-mole, wouldn't it, that they'll keep moving until there's an injunction maybe that applies to all of them? I think you're absolutely right, which is why I think it should be expanded to all bridges and overpasses throughout the region um, so that they, they can't just continue to move on um, to, to different uh, locations. Did the RCMP enforce the injunction then when it was on the, the Mountain Highway overpass? Um, I think they have uh, to some degree, uh, which, is, which is why they, they moved on. Um, and there, are, there have been signs up there you know, letting people know that they can't be 
posting uh, big signs to the overpass. So I think it was was successful, uh, which is why I think it should be expanded. And so, so what has to happen next then? Again, it was the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure that first got that injunction. I know the Premier was asked about this yesterday as well, and he too said that he was quite concerned about what he referred to as the hateful language being used in a lot of the, the signs and what's being said. Uh, so is it going back to the Ministry, or what do you think then has to happen next? I'm encouraged by the Premier's comments that I heard yesterday as well. So hopefully um, it will go back to the Ministry at this point. I think that that would be the next step so that they can um, expand the injunction. Is it happening anywhere else in the community or is it specific to the highway overpass? It's been fairly specific to the highway overpass. Uh, I think some of these individuals have have turned up and and spoke at at council meetings in the city of North Vancouver, but we haven't seen them protesting uh, in other parts of the community. And when they show up to council meetings, is it the same message or what message are they bringing to council? I think it's a very similar message. Again, that was in the city of North Vancouver and, and I'm on council in the district of North Vancouver. But uh, from what I understand, they're, they're bringing the same sort of messaging to, to council meetings. Which seems, unless it's different members of the group, it seems like a bit of a strange choice given that it sounds like the, the issues that a lot of this, the group members have are with the school program and that they might be going to the school board instead. I, I, it's, it just seems a bit odd. I'm not sure what they'd be asking for from council. Uh, that's right. Um, I, I think, you know, they, they were responding to a statement that the mayor made in the city in support uh, of, of the LGBTQ community. Um, but uh, you're right. I, and I think that their messaging is, is such a, a mixed bag of, of issues. Um, so, you know, perhaps there's no one uh, level of government that's going to be able to respond to, you know, what they're protesting about. Um, but for me, it's it's fairly specific to um, how they're um, going after the LGBTQ community uh, with some of their anti-SOGI messaging. That um, that's that's what's caused me to speak out. Right. And so then, at this point, since they tend to gather on Thursdays, uh, do you think anything can be done before next week, or is it something that we'll now have to kind of go back and figure out about the possibility of expanding that injunction? I really can't comment too much on that. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the province can expand this in the next week. Uh, I'd like to see this stopped as soon as possible. Um, I think we're, we're hearing now quite clearly from, from a large number of people in the community that they want to see the same thing. So hopefully um, something can happen in the next week. All right. Councillor Jordan Back, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jill. If you spend any time driving, you have probably seen distracted drivers when you are out and about. A new poll done by Research Co. shows that more than three in five British Columbians say they have noticed a distracted driver on the road in just the past four weeks. Joining us to talk more about these findings is Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co. Mario, great to check back in with you again. My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here with you. I am not surprised by the numbers, even with the fines going up and people knowing that you're not supposed to be holding the phone or being distracted. But what else did you find about what people are seeing on the roads? Well, what we find first is that uh, the great numbers that we had in 2022 were an illusion. Uh, We went down to 46% of British Columbians who had seen somebody who was using their handheld cell phone while they were driving. We thought it's the start of a beautiful trend. It's coming down. And now in 2023, it's up to 62 percent. 
uh, higher than 80% in the Fraser Valley. So we thought the problem was going away, and it clearly isn't. Were you asking people specifically about people on their phones? Because I know there have been some other crazy things seen, uh, you know, balancing a pizza box on the steering wheel, uh, putting on makeup, shaving, that kind of thing as well. <laughs> oh, it never ends, does it? Uh, this we, we wanted to talk specifically about the handheld cell phone issue, but... Uh, we would have a significantly higher number if we had people who are having their lunch or putting their makeup. It's been very complex, and we've had a guideline in place for almost 20 years now, and we've seen the fines a little bit higher than they were before, and we continue to see people who believe that this is something that should be dealt with. I I guess that's the other message that the survey sends us. Uh, When we ask about three alternative penalties that we could try to implement to deal with this issue, the numbers are significantly higher than what we saw back in 2022. And it is interesting, too, when you mentioned the breakdown of the regional uh, where the the different parts of the province where people are seeing more distracted driving. Eighty two percent in the Fraser Valley seems like a pretty high number. It's huge. It's four out of five. It's almost as if everybody who is around you is going to be doing this at some point. And it's not as if there's any specific region that is clearly ahead of the pack. Metro Vancouver is at 57 percent, significantly lower than 82. But still, it's more than half of people here who are saying, yes, I saw this happen to me. And it's not something that is pleasant because we know how many accidents are caused by people who are distracted while they're driving. Did you ask people as well um, if the kind of the circumstances? And we've discussed this before in that it's all illegal. We get that. And there are fines that, that go with it. But I think there are still many people who will justify if you're stopped at a train crossing and there's a train going and the, the arms are down. Is it really going to hurt anyone if you check a text message? Much different than if you're flying down the highway at 110 kilometers an hour and thinking that you're going to check it there. Did, did it differentiate or look at the different circumstances at all? We do get a little bit of that nuance, and it, it's always fascinating to watch because there's always this justification of, oh, I only did it once and it was fine and it was at a stop sign or whatever the situation might be. And it's tough because nobody, if, if you get caught, uh, they're not going to take that as an excuse either. So it's more than anything what we're getting from the survey is people who know that this is happening. We know that in the month of May, uh, the RCMP detachments in many municipalities said we're going to crack down on this. And it still didn't really help to send a message to people who continue to do this. And there's always going to be that justification. Oh, it was only once. Oh, the car wasn't moving. Uh, It doesn't matter because the law is the law. And and clearly we have more than three out of five residents of the province who say people are breaking the law every time. Uh, People are also in favor of taking away those electronic devices for repeat offenders. I was a little bit surprised at how much support that question got. (laughs) I was too, you know. percent of British Columbians saying if you get caught twice doing this, uh, they should seize your electronic device. It climbs all the way to 79 percent with those over 55. So it sends a very interesting message in the sense that the younger generation that grew up with these devices is more likely to say, OK, I think that's a little bit harsh. Uh, but the over 55s who we know win elections and vote every time are saying, I wouldn't mind if you try to implement something like this. So from a policy standpoint, it's not going to be problematic if a government decides that they want to do something harsher because it's supported by a majority and by a significant majority of those over 55. And did you break it down as well? I know oftentimes you do ask people kind of their voting preferences and if they, the, those also fall along those kind of similar lines. 
Yes, that was also quite interesting because we usually have that policy divide, right? If it's a policy that the government from the NDP wants to implement, it's not something that the BC Liberal voter or the BC Green voter is going to be supportive of. In this particular case, uh, the level of support for all the three things that we're testing is significantly high. So you don't have that difference of the BC Liberal voter becoming a quasi-libertarian voter and saying, no, 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 this is too harsh. They believe that it's time to either double the fine seize the electronic devices of repeat offenders, or even suspend their license for a year. So all of this sounds a bit draconian, but it's supported by more than half of residents. And when you mentioned, too, that there was a difference when you asked about this before or looking at back to 2022, did you get any sense on why there's been such, an, uh, such a big shift back uh, kind of to the distracted driving and why there's such a difference there? I think part of what we saw is uh, we didn't have everybody embracing the post-pandemic world at the same time. You know, we had a lot of people who even after the vaccines weren't really working uh, at their offices, weren't really driving that much. We're now uh, deep into 2023, so people are going back to the office and driving more. I think this is making them realize that this is happening more often than not. Uh, Part of what we saw before is maybe you're not out on the street all the time and you're not noticing this as much, but we're back to the levels that we had before. And it's certainly not a good trend. I mean, we thought the numbers would be a little bit lower this time around, but uh, here we are, 62% of us saying, yeah, that happened to me. Hmm, interesting. And I'm, I'm curious, too, and I know this poll, this research doesn't go into it, but with the numbers going up, with people seeing this, I, I am curious as well, because we're often told by ICBC, by the ministry in charge of this, that there is that direct connection between distracted driving and crashes. But I do wonder if the crash rate levels are also up to kind of prove or back up that idea. We have seen the numbers, the most recent numbers that were put out by ICBC, and it does seem to be trending upward as well. Uh, It's complicated because there might be a wide range of reasons for a crash to happen, but it's one of the things that they keep reminding us us of consistently. And we can go back to the time when the law was first implemented. Cell phones were very different back then. You couldn't get a lot of stuff done. You weren't certainly as connected as you are with all of the applications that we have now. So we've had a rule in place since before the technology enabled us to do a lot of that. So part of what I think is necessary is a little bit of a, of a rekindling with the situation that we have in front of us, because this isn't your ordinary 2006 cell phone where you could do a couple of things. And now your whole life is there. And it's very difficult for somebody to put it down, even if it's illegal. Which, I mean, I guess it's a whole other conversation as well. But if you, when you talk about the technology, I think that in some of the newer vehicles, though, that have these giant computer screens in them, and I know that it's, it's, it doesn't work with all everything when you're flying down the highway, but I find those computer screens are just as distracting, if not more distracting, than if you were having a phone in your holder and, and clicking or just touching the button on the phone. You're absolutely right. There's been cases in the United States where uh, there's ways in which you can hook, hook up those computers to watch the football game or something like that. And the fact that it can be done has a lot of the law enforcement agencies scratching their heads. You know, this was supposed to make things easier for you. You're making it harder on yourself by rejigging this in a way that is going to enable you to see how the Philadelphia Eagles are doing. <laughs> well, it's a, definitely a, some interesting research. Mario, as always, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Jill. You too. My pleasure. 
Well, several animal rights groups and animal advocates are saying it is a very big success and groundbreaking talking about a bill that ends toxicity tests on animals. And joining us to talk more about what this actually looks like is Dr. Charu Chandrasekara, founder and executive director of the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Method, located at the University of Windsor. Dr. Chandrasekara, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this? This is Bill S-5, the Strengthening Environmental Protection for a Healthier Canada Act. What does this do specifically when we're talking about toxicity tests that have been performed on animals? So this law actually affects toxicity testing for evaluating whether chemicals in consumer products and industrial applications can cause adverse health effects, um, whether it's humans or adverse effects on the environment. So products like household cleaners, paint, pesticides, industrial chemicals, industrial waste effluents. If you've ever seen those warning table uh, labels on consumer products, like it may cause eye or skin irritation, cancer, or even be lethal with the skull and bone symbol, those labels are derived from animal testing. Right. So does this bill then, because the wording I thought, it says it includes measures aimed at phasing out painful toxicity tests on animals. Uh, That doesn't sound like it's definitive. Will this actually stop it or will it mean that government has to try and stop it or work at stopping it in the future? So it is not an immediate stop, but it is to phase out by replacing, reducing and refining the use of animals in toxicity testing. It will take time to do that. It is not going to happen overnight. But the bill is pretty strong in the sense that it requires the government to play an active role in doing that, in replacing and reducing animals in toxicity testing. It requires the government to support the development and incorporation of scientifically justified alternative methods. And the government also has to, within two years, come up with a plan uh, to promote animal-free toxicity testing. All right. Are there other countries that you know of that are already doing this? Absolutely. We're late in the game. I mean, I'm so, so thrilled that we're doing this now. Uh, The European Union brought in similar legislation for animal protection um, and with plans for the eventual elimination of all animal tests. That was in 2010. The U.S. brought in very similar legislation um, to amend their toxicity, um, Toxic Substance Control Act back, back in 2016. So, um, yes, we, we are behind the games, but we're doing it. And I don't know if you heard, just last night, um, we banned cosmetic animal testing in Canada. It received royal lesson last night. I did. I did. And I wanted to ask you about that as well, because I know other countries and there have been other jurisdictions that have also taken more of a lead when it comes to that. Will that be more immediate or what, what does the, the banning of the cosmetic testing, what, was, what does that specifically look like? So we would have to wait and see what the regulations um, would be, how long it would take to sort of change some of the structures here in Canada. The amendments will prohibit selling cosmetics that rely on new animal testing data. I mean, given that we have decades of animal testing data from uh, for most of these cosmetic ingredients, and we have, and you know, a lot of countries have done this for decades, but the Euro- European Union ban came into effect over a decade ago now. So, um, and in the Canadian one, it will include um, a trade ban 
and you cannot do false or mislabeled, um, you can't have mislabeled products. Some people like to just say no animal testing, but they would have to now prove to the government that there hasn't been, if you're using that label, that it needs to be um, backed up by evidence that you did not use any animal testing to derive the safety of these compounds or the final finished product. Right, because and, and that's been kind of the gray area with that, hasn't it? In that somebody can say this product wasn't tested on animals, which could be completely true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that components of the product weren't tested on animals. At some point it may have been. I mean, here's the thing, right? So we're banning um, cosmetic animal testing decades after it started. And so there are lots of ingredients that were tested in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, 80s, 90s. Over the past few decades, um, those are still there. So at some point, they did go through animal testing, but anything new. So with the ban, then anything that's been tested before doesn't need to be tested. And the ban um, gives you that flexibility. You could still use old data. In fact, one of the, the advantages, now that we have all that data, it's one of the ways we could even validate that some of these new methods that we're developing are even better than animal tests. Um, And this is something that we're seeing in my field, that every time we come up with a new test, we can say, look, it's better than the animal data because the animal data already exists. We don't have to do anything new. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to ask you about. And looking at what you mentioned where you talked about the toxicity tests. So these are tests to see whether a chemical or whether something is is harmful or it could cause something like skin burns or birth defects or cause some pretty, pretty serious conditions. So are there other ways then that we're finding that are that are working just as well that chemicals and compounds are able to be tested that don't include animals? Yes, and most of these new tests that are being, it's a whole, like, complete toolbox with so many different tools that you could use to interrogate human biology, Um, whether it's looking at something that happens, what if it changes your DNA, if it causes mutations, um, to birth defects and other things. It is a complete package, a toolbox that you could mix and match and pick and choose from to look at different aspects of biology. It's not complete yet. We can't replace everything by tomorrow morning, but we're certainly getting that way. Even looking at very complex things like developmental neurotoxicity. So this is where you're looking at the toxicity of the brain in a developing fetus. There are international efforts currently underway to replace that. And we're going to see that within a few years. Um, so even looking at right something complex like that, and some of the most simpler ones have already been like phototoxicity. So this is looking at how your skin reacts to reacts when um, you're exposed to the sun with whatever compounds on your skin, um, if there is a toxicity, that was replaced many years ago. So there are things that have been replaced or even more complex uh, biology, allergic reactions, um, things like that have already been replaced. And what we're seeing with these new methods is that they are very sensitive and they're more predictive of human biology. Hmm. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think we often, when we talk about animal testing, we kind of make that connection or we, we, think immediately of cosmetic testing and that, but but forget maybe or don't make the connection that we're talking about things as well, like plastics, like household cleaners, food packaging, things that we use in our everyday life that we want to make sure that it's not toxic, that it's not going to cause birth defects or, or health defects. But also I think people would agree, we also don't want to see these painful tests done on animals. 
I mean, the thing is, just because you test them in an animal doesn't make it safe. It's just a practice that's been there since the 50s and 60s. But most of those tests that were developed back then, decades ago, they were never fully validated to show whether they are able to predict human biological responses in a way that is reliable. Um, Most of these animal tests are not reliable, which is why we have to now start resorting to human biology-based methods so we could really understand how human cells and tissues and um, organ human, you know, exposure in the environment, how all of these things affect our species. And and also, you have to also consider um, time and cost. On average, it could take up to three years and cost $6 million to screen one single chemical fully. And we have over 85,000 chemicals in commerce that do not have full toxicology data. It would take us centuries to do all the tests with animals. And even then, we wouldn't really know if they're all safe for us. So with these new methods, we could do them faster and they're cheaper and they're going to become even cheaper as time goes on with these new technologies and certainly more predictive of our biology. So do you think then there's the possibility, like you said, the government now with the passing of this bill, Bill S-5, has a couple of years to kind of figure this out to to make that shift away from any uh, animal toxicity testing. Does it need to take that long? Because it sounds like we already have these other methods and other alternatives, uh, other options available. There are lots of options available. And honestly, in Canada, I don't think it'll take the full two years. Um, the United States did this in a similar manner. In 2016, um, the EPA, uh, the Environment Protection Agency, they had two years to develop a strategic plan, and the U.S. has two other strategic plans, one developed by the Food and Drug Administration, one developed by 16 federal agencies. So there's president-setting examples that Canada is already a part of these international consortia. Health Canada has been a part of um, international guideline development for decades. And therefore, I don't think it will take that long. I'm really looking forward to seeing the Canadian plan um, the Minister of uh, Environment and Health will present. Um, and it will incorporate all of these new methods. And, I, and it will be such a huge uh, advantage for Canada to have this mandated by the government. All right. Well, it's a, an interesting development indeed. We will leave it there. Uh, but Dr. Chandra Sekera, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you for for covering this topic. If you've ever had sore joints, you'll want to to listen closely to this. A new gel that combines both stiffness and toughness is moving forward in the bid to create biodegradable implants for joint injuries. And this is all coming out of UBC. And joining us to talk more about this is Hong Bin Lee, a professor in the UBC Department of Chemistry. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Yeah, so thank you. This is, uh, sounds fascinating that uh, this biodegradable implants for joint injuries. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research and about this gel? Uh, yes. Um, so um, one of the um, approach people are trying to repair uh, college uh, so is to uh, create a uh, so-called uh, uh, scaffold. And then so in, implant the scaffold into the defect site and so let the cell to grow and then to differentiate and finally to, to form the, uh, the new college tissue uh, to repair the, the tissue. 
And so uh, one of the challenge is uh, to make this uh, uh, scaffold uh, so stiff and tough, uh, so that will meet the requirement uh, for the cells uh, uh, to to differentiate to finally form the uh, college uh, tissues. Uh, so our new work, uh, so is uh, um, finally uh, achieved uh, this feat uh, to uh, produce a uh, stiff and tough uh, protein hydrogels. And uh, so that will uh, show the uh, features uh, that will probably uh, better shielded uh, for the uh, uh, for the cells and for the uh, tissue uh, regeneration, at least in the animal model. And I understand from the research as well, or, or one of the challenges here is to actually make something that has that delicate balance that can kind of uh, mimic or be like cartilage. Right. Yeah, because this is uh, one of the, the main issues, because uh, in order to uh, ensure that uh, the implant, uh, so putting there, the cells uh, can uh, stick, uh, can uh, differentiate, and so not uh, biochemically they had to be compatible, but also they had to uh, biomechanically compatible. Uh, so uh, in other words, so basically they had to have certain uh, mechanical uh, properties. And so being tough and being stiff, uh, so is uh, one of the uh, the criti uh, critical uh, requirement. Uh, but these uh, two uh, features, uh, toughness and stiffness, uh, are often and kind of uh, contradicting uh, to each other. So you can make something stiff, uh, but you're making it uh, brittle at the same time. And you can make something soft, uh, tough, uh, but they are they are too soft. Uh, so this is a kind of the challenge in the in the material uh, science. And uh, so uh, that's where uh, uh, our research come into the, the picture. Uh, so uh, to use a, a special a new method we developed in the lab uh, so that we can create this uh, new hydrogel is uh, uh, stiff at the same time it's, uh, it's tough. Uh, so that will meet uh, uh, the mechanical requirement uh, for, uh, for this uh, particular uh, challenge. Hmm. And how challenging was it? I know that you and your team have been working on this and trying to find that balance. Was it a lot of trial and error? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of trial, trial and error. And so this is something uh, scientists have been trying for uh, for quite some time. So there are uh, polymer, uh, basically synthetic polymer-based uh, uh, system uh, trying to uh, to achieve that fee. So there's some uh, success uh, out there, and uh, but for for the protein side, uh, so because uh, if we use the proteins, uh, we can easily incorporate uh, bioactive ingredient, and then will be we can make them completely uh, biodegradable. So on the protein side, so that has been uh, challenging uh, to make. So our system probably is one of the first uh, uh, protein hydrogels uh, combining this toughness and the stiffness into one uh, system. And, and how important is it that it's biodegradable? Uh, well, so so there are just a, a, a couple different approaches. And so uh, the approach we are following, so basically we're using the scaffold to input into the uh, damaged side. And so the scaffold eventually will need to be degraded. And so, we, so the scaffold basically just uh, providing a uh, kind of uh, environment for the cell uh, to, to, to grow. So the cells are from our, our own body, and so they can uh, regenerate the, uh, regenerate the, the college uh, tissue. So this is a one approach. Of course, there's uh, uh, other approaches. For example, 
uh, not uh, a degradable uh, um, scaffold. Basically, the scaffold will be put in there uh, permanently. They are not going to to degrade, uh, so they will uh, provide similar. Uh, similar uh, functions, but so these are two different approaches. Uh, so each one has a pro and con. Uh, so the one we are uh, we are taking, so it is the first one, so the biodegradable uh, approach. Yeah. And so what stage are things at now? It sounds like uh, through all of that trial and error that, that you've been able to, to figure out or, or strike that balance when it comes to the gel and the stiffness and the toughness. Uh, where does it go from this point on as far as I think, like I said uh, off the, the, the beginning, anybody that's had a knee injury or joint pain will, will be very appreciative of this, I think, given that there are such difficult injuries and things to fix. Yes. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so unfortunately, so this uh, our study is uh, at a very very early uh, stage, and uh, so probably it's uh, very far from the the real uh, applications. And uh, so uh, the approach uh, we are we are taking, so we are opening a new uh, kind of direction and opens a new possibility for scientists to uh, to experimenting with uh, a more uh, more systematically. Uh, so, but unfortunately, uh, for the real uh, clinical uh, application, probably, uh, so there will be uh, still a long way to go. Yeah. So, but uh, so at least, uh, so this is uh, from our uh, scientific research point of view. So this opens up uh, a new, exciting, uh, new possibility uh, for more uh, ex- uh, experiments. So hopefully, we hope down the road at some point, so will uh, be useful, can be put into. Uh, clinical trials or ultimately uh, be used uh, for um, for uh, patient uh, treatment. Right. And so still a long way down the road, though. Like you said, this research is still pre- premature to even, I, I would imagine, be talking about human trials. Uh, so it's, uh, it's still still far, far away from, from that. Yeah. So there are still a lot of parameters that need to be tested and need to be optimized. And so again, so this is a kind of exciting new starting point, give us uh, some new hope. Uh, so our uh, method address uh, one unmet need in the field. Uh, so we'll see uh, how this uh, whole thing uh, will go uh, down the road. So certainly we hope uh, we can uh, achieve something, uh, something more exciting. But at this stage, so it's a, a really kind of a fundamental uh, research. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting research as well and showing a lot of promise for that. Hongbin Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking more about this today. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure.